On Friday, the 2020 Olympics held their opening ceremonies after a year of waiting. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Watching the opening ceremonies and it still says 2020 on all the banners. Representatives from various countries from around the world who have devoted their lives to athletic achievement have arrived in Tokyo to go for the gold. In the midst of all the coverage, I ran across a a five-year-old tweet from comic Bill Murray. Check out his idea. He says, every Olympic event should include one average person competing for reference. (laughs) What do you think? That would make it interesting, wouldn't it? Because you see all these incredible athletes, and they're all competing together, and you think, yeah, okay, I could do that. But can you imagine a lottery system where your name is called to compete in boxing? How about run the marathon? No? Maybe those gymnastic bars where they spin around and flip back and forth one to another? I feel like I could do that. Now, if you don't think so, thanks. Thanks for your faith in me, Kay. Now, if we're not careful, here's why, here's why I bring it up. If we're not careful, that's how we can view the spiritual life, isn't it? If we're not careful, we can, we can start to think that there are these spiritual giants who we will never be, but maybe we could watch on TV, right? These spiritual giants who we will never be, but maybe we could sit back in our pew and we could observe up on the stage, right? These spiritual giants up on the stage, like... Like Pastor Brian, obviously, not me. And, and here's the point. This, this past year has exacerbated this tendency in our, in our thinking. Um, the thought that the action is taking place somewhere else by someone else doing something that we could never do, right? We've become even more disconnected to the reality of the life that God has called us to. And so we're trying to push back on that tendency in the series we're currently engaging. Uh, we're, we're thinking through the, the historic spiritual disciplines, the spiritual rhythms, the holy habits of the Christian life. Um, because as we've already discussed, the Christian life is not one of trying, but it is one of training, Right? It's not one of trying as if our name was called by the Olympic Committee and all of a sudden we had to jump into a sport that we'd never done before. That would be trying. But our life is an opportunity to engage training, right? Like those who are competing currently in Tokyo. The Apostle Paul uses this metaphor a number of times. He very well may have been at the Olympic Games in AD 51. Remember, he was a tent maker on the side. He uses this metaphor of running the race. Right? I have run the race. I have kept the faith. He tells us constantly about training ourselves in godliness. Um, that's no mistake. That, that connection is no mistake. In these spiritual disciplines, these sacred rhythms, these holy habits, it, it's those through which God transforms us into who he created us to be. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once put it this way, Now, with God's help, I shall become myself. Now, with God's help, I shall become who he created me to be. Or or to adapt the Home Depot tagline, you can do it, and these holy habits can help. This week we turn our attention to one of the better known but lesser practiced holy habits, fasting. Now, fasting is mentioned in the scriptures even more than baptism, but it has gotten a bad reputation, hasn't it? 
A lot of people, when they think of fasting, they think of it being an overly legalistic sort of thing based on a strict religious asceticism. There's one author I read that compared fasting in our modern day to walking across hot coals or handling venomous snakes, which, to be clear, despite the backdrop, I would not recommend. (laughs) Now, in other ways, sometimes we can confuse fasting with dieting, right? Fasting has recently been embraced for its health benefits. Uh, the, The benefits of intermittent fasting, where you don't eat between particular hours in the day. Who's heard of this before? A few of us? Yeah. Yeah, it's promised that if we would just engage intermittent fasting, we might lose that quarantine 15. It's another option in an ever-expanding diet industry that pulls in $50 billion a year. That's billion with a B. But the two are not the same. You see, dieting is about our willpower and control. Fasting is about our dependence on God. Dieting is about what we eat. Fasting is about who we are becoming in Jesus. Dieting is about losing weight. Fasting is about imaging our God to the world around us. Dieting is about impressing people. Fasting is about serving them. Dieting is about our body. Fasting is about surrendering our anxiety over food and turning to God as the author and the giver of life. And so, whether or not we diet, the scriptures clarify that the benefits of fasting are not only physical. They are some physical benefits, but that's not the primary goal of fasting. The primary benefits of fasting are spiritual in nature. Now, to understand this the best way possible, I think it's, it's best to begin in the beginning. Um, on the very first page of the Bible, we read, The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That word for living being is nefesh. Let me hear you say nefesh. nefesh. Now, nefesh is a Hebrew word that means throat. If you were reading this ancient poem about creation of Adam and Eve for the very first time, and you're reading it in the Hebrew, you would say that God created thinking, walking, talking throats. Empty shoots in need of filling. And so within the etymology of our name, every time we think of being a human being, we are affirming that we are creatures. We are creatures who are forever dependent on our creator. We are forever in need of food and water and air. Which means, when Adam and Eve raid that tree, they are, in a sense, rejecting that role as creatures. They're rejecting that role as being open throats, aren't they? They want to be creatures who are independent. God said, look at all these trees I created for you. Those are for you, but just not that one. And they say, no, we'll take that one too, thank you very much. It's like when my kids were a little younger and they were developing their independence for the first time. They were finding their voice and they would stomp their foot and they would say, I do it myself. (laughs) That's Adam and Eve for us, isn't it? And it's us too. It caused the English poet Geoffrey Chaucer once to lament, Oh, cursed gluttony, our first distress. That raiding that tree was the cause of our first confusion, our first temptation, the very origin of our damnation. 
which isn't usually how we react when we grab an orange off the tree or stroll through the produce section of the grocery store, is it? We usually don't see fruit and have that reaction, oh my gosh, what a terrible reminder of our first temptation, our first confusion. But it revealed that Adam and Eve wanted to do things themselves. They wanted to be independent. They do it themselves. And if we're honest, our relationship with food often communicates the same thing, that we too want independence. When was the last time you paused in the grocery store and said a prayer of thanksgiving for all of the options beautifully laid out before you? When was the last time you paused before ordering from the menu to say, you know what, this isn't just a table at which I sit and a server which brings me this wonderful food, but behind here there are cooks in the kitchen and delivery trucks that bring this food from distribution centers and warehouses that are connected to farms. When was the last time we paused to be reminded that we are nefesh? We are open throats in constant need of filling and that we can't do that on our own. That first attempt at independence continued with God's people for 40 years in the wilderness. Remember the manna that fell from heaven and God connected this holy habit with another holy habit we've already discussed. He said, take enough on the sixth day for the seventh, but they couldn't do it. They distrusted the next day's provision. And so they took more than they needed. They took as much as they could. All of it points forward to the moment following Jesus' baptism. You remember Jesus' baptism when he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness for 40 days? And the devil tempts him in three ways, three ways that all of us have been tempted before as well. First, the devil tempts him with ambition. All this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Secondly, the devil tempts him with approval. If you throw yourself down, God will catch you. These two are massive temptations in all of our lives. Ambition and approval. But before that, before Jesus is tempted by ambition and approval, Jesus is tempted in his appetite. Jesus has fasted a a supernatural fast, if there ever was one, both 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil says to him, if, if you are the son of God, well then tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answers, Man shall not live on bread alone. See, this was the very first temptation of Adam and Eve. The tempter engages Jesus' needs, questions Jesus' satisfaction, tries to prompt Jesus' fear, because Jesus, in his humanity, was like us. Nefesh, a, a walking, talking throat. Where our ancestors grasped fruit from the tree, where our ancestors grabbed manna from the ground, Jesus recognized the spiritual connection, the spiritual dimension of the material and the physical. That our relationship with food affects the health of our soul. The one person who could have turned stones into bread didn't. The one person, the very bread of life, who could multiply his own loaves and fishes, thank you very much, doesn't. The one person who could have been completely independent remains dependent. Think about how radical that is, that Jesus, being in the very nature God, 
could have been completely independent. He did not need us. He was the literal bread of life. He did not need the things of this world. He could create them himself. And yet he remained dependent upon his Father in heaven. The Trinity remained intact. Jesus so closely illustrates the story of God's people. Jesus so clearly identifies with our human condition that he joins us in fasting for 40 days. Jesus recognizes and reveals the connection between the material and the spiritual, that our relationship with food affects the health of our soul. Jesus knows how food and drink can become our comfort and our salvation after a long and difficult day. Which prompts some of us to turn our heads and say, what in the world are you talking about? How could food be our comfort and salvation after a long and difficult day? Well, has food ever distracted you or diverted you from life issues that need to be faked? Has food ever numbed your emotions and given you a false sense of power? The New Testament talks about it a lot. In Romans 16.8, Paul writes, They serve not the Lord Jesus Christ, they serve their own belly. I've been there. I will freely admit to you. In Philippians 3, he says, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is their destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Jesus even tells a story about a rich man whose gluttony was even more than self-indulgence, that his consumption prompted a blindness to the needy at his gate. See, Scripture paints a realistic picture about how we can interact with food. Long before the writers knew how easy it would be to walk in the door after a long day and head straight for the freezer and its big tub of ice cream. Anybody been there before? I won't ask for a show of hands. Long before modern refrigeration, long before the days of long meetings and difficult work days, the writers of Scripture knew the temptation that we sometimes face. That big tub of ice cream, a few more potato chips, three or four more cookies, and a big glass of wine to top it off. The holy habit of fasting, then, is excellent training It's an excellent training ground for a life that feasts on the bread of heaven. For a life that proceeds from the love of God. The great Richard Foster concluded this way. He said, fasting reveals the things that control us. If you've ever sensed that there might be something controlling you, fasting is a great way, a great place to exercise in that training ground. When we fast from food, when we fast from drink, when we fast from screens, when we fast from some particular part of life that may be a good thing but can be overindulged, we recognize how easily we're controlled by these external things of this world. And what's more, fasting frees us to feast on the love of God. You know the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the reason that humans are here? And the answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I would be willing to confess to you, especially after hearing about the importance of confession from Rick last week, that there are times my enjoyment of God is muted because I am enjoying something else more. 
My enjoyment of God is muted after a long day because I've got that big tub of ice cream. Our enjoyment of God can be muted by the things of this world. But we are here to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which means that fasting can free us to feast on God even more. Our relationship to food is one of those great opportunities, not for trying and and white-knuckling it, oh, I'm going to fast for a little while, but instead to be trained. See, fasting is not just for Jesus. He intends it for us too. Well, in the first century, people were instructed on how long to fast and, and which days they were to fast. Jesus does not echo these demands. It was assumed, as we read in the scriptures, as we read in Jesus' telling the story, remember the man who goes up and he prays, and he looks over at the sinner who's beating his breast, and he is confessing his sin, and this really righteous guy says, listen, I give away 10% of what I bring home, and I fast twice a week. Jesus says that it was the other man who went away justified before God. And so Jesus doesn't tell us how often we should fast and how long we should fast, though he does assume that we will fast. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus retains fasting as the third of the three pillars of Judaism, giving and praying and fasting. He doesn't say if you fast, but when you fast. I've got to tell you, this is one of those holy habits that isn't so exciting for me to engage. I love that tub of ice cream. I love that extra slice of pizza. But scripture both begins and ends with a meal. But in between that beginning and that ending, it highlights various opportunities to fast. And so if as we think about these holy habits, if as we think about our life in Jesus being not a trying ground, but a training ground, Think about the various opportunities that that Scripture highlights. These are all detailed uh, in this week's study guide if you want to dig in more. The the reasons for fasting in the Scriptures includes expressing ourselves to God in love and in worship. The Scriptures don't see those as separate things, as, as fasting and worship, but as integrated. The Scriptures tell us that we can fast out of concern for others, concern for ourselves. Fasting is an opportunity to express our grief or even our repentance. Does anybody ever have any concern or grief? Do any among us ever need to repent of anything? I didn't think I'd get a lot of hands on that one, but I did get three over here. Thank you, four. We'll keep going. Five, I like it. Six. Fasting isn't... We can also fast when we want to experience humility instead of pride. We have a lot of reasons that we can be proud of ourselves, but the scriptures call us to be those who are humble as well. Fasting is an opportunity to practice overcoming temptation. We're told to flee temptation in the scriptures, and fasting is a great training ground for it. Fasting is also a way to minister to others, as we heard read by Chuck a few moments ago in Isaiah 58. This is the fast God calls us to, a fast to loosen the chains of injustice. Fasting can help strengthen our prayers. Fasting can help us to seek God's guidance. Fasting can help us seek deliverance in times of difficulty or trial. The world around us will constantly tell tell us that it's pointless to fast, that there is a difference between the material world and the spiritual world if there is one. 
And yet the scriptures see them as hand in hand. That eternity begins now. And that as we practice a very physical spiritual discipline, we can grow by leaps and bounds in grace. You see, what did the ancient members of God's family know that we have since forgotten? What did they know about fasting that we have missed? They knew that everything is connected. That the material and the spiritual worlds are one and the same. They knew that fasting is the training ground for a life that feasts on the bread of heaven. I want to do that more and eat less pizza. How about you? Especially after the year we've had. Especially after the season we've been in. It has been tempting, hasn't it? To lose track of these spiritual disciplines, of these sacred rhythms, of these holy habits, and to rely more and more upon ourselves. To be dependent on number one. May we live a life that proceeds from the love of God. May we live a life that feasts on the good news of God's love for us because we have fasted. We know that the end of Scripture details the promise of the life that is to come, and that life includes a massive feast. And Jesus said that before that day comes, after he has taken away from his disciples, that his disciples will fast. In fasting, may we join Jesus in enduring hunger and thirst so we might instead be filled with the real food and the real drink that only he can give. Would you join me in prayer?